Hello, and welcome back to Ask the Experts. I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, your host, and this is season two of the interview show where we get to chat with some of the leading thinkers in anesthesiology about a wide range of important topics, such as airway management, medical missions, pediatric dental anesthesia, and much, much more. Just as a reminder, we always welcome questions from our listeners. And if you would like to submit a question for a future guest, all you have to do is email us at anpresents at mcmahonmed.com, or you can reach us on Twitter at Anesthesia News, and I'll include details to both of those in the episode description. Now, before we get to today's guest, I do have one more announcement. The first year of Ask the Experts was a wonderful success, and most of that is thanks to you, our listeners. But... To be honest, producing a podcast like this can feel a bit like flying in the dark. We appreciate all of your support, the downloads, the reviews, the comments and questions, and all of you sharing the show on social media. But we want to do more for you. In a nutshell, we want to make the best show we can for you, our listeners. So to help us achieve this lofty goal, we have created a listener survey. We've included a link to the survey in the episode description. It takes about five to 10 minutes to fill out and it will help us get to know you better. What you like about the show, what you hate about the show, why you listen, and what you would love to hear more of from us and our guests. So please just take a few minutes to answer some of the questions and help us build a better show for you. Now, I am happy to announce our guest for this episode of Ask the Experts, Making his second appearance on the show is Dr. William Rosenblatt. Dr. Rosenblatt is a professor of anesthesiology at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. He is also the founder of Airway on Demand, a website and educational program that is dedicated to providing resources on airway management. Part of that effort includes the Airway on Demand video series. Now you can watch that video series on anesthesiologynews.com as well as airwayondemand.com. He is also one of the co-authors of the new 2022 American Society of Anesthesiologists Practice Guidelines for Management of the Difficult Airway, which is what we will be talking with him about today. Now, without further ado, Dr. William Rosenblatt. Listen to the new MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic, featuring brief interview-style discussions with clinical experts about safe and effective use of therapies in patient monitoring and respiratory interventions. The first series includes discussions on anesthesia and brain monitoring from raw EEG to process EEG, the use of TIVA to post-operative outcomes, and many other topics. Check out the MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. New episodes every Wednesday. Okay, and welcome to the show, Dr. Rosenblatt. And I should say welcome back to the show because you are our first time repeat guest. You were actually the very first guest on the show last year, and now you're the first guest for season two of this series. So welcome back. Thanks, Michael. Very glad to be back. I know we already recapped, you know, who you are, you know, where you work, so I won't make you go through the whole story, but could you give us a quick recap about, you know, what you do and where you work? Sure. So I'm a professor of anesthesiology at Yale School of Medicine. 
actually came to anesthesiology late. I started out as a pediatrician, and this is actually some advice that I give to medical students and interns. I started out as a pediatrician and soon realized that that field was not for me and wanted to leave. I had a mandatory rotation in anesthesiology as a medical student, and so when pediatrics wasn't working out, I kind of fell back to this one area that I'd never considered, but I really enjoyed that rotation, and that was anesthesia. So after pediatrics, I started the anesthesia residency at Yale, and I never looked back. So one of the things we want to talk to you about today is about the new ASA revised guidelines on difficult airway management. And, you know, before we get into the details and sort of, you know, picking apart how everything went with that and, and what that means, I wanted to ask you first, how did you get involved in writing the update of these guidelines? So I was an early adopter of the laryngeal mask airway way back in the 1990s. And I always had an interest in how superglottic airways affected how we decided to take care of patients. You know, I suddenly had this new bravery knowing that I had the LMA in my back pocket. And when if things went bad, I had another way to take care of the, the patient. And of course, this curiosity was really heightened when the video laryngoscopy uh, was introduced with the, the video, what was called the video Mac and then the GlideScope. And for many years, I was lecturing at the ASA and elsewhere on something called the airway approach algorithm, which was a way of taking the information about a patient and organizing it in a way that helped you to make a plan. Somewhere around 2014, I introduced the concept to Dr. Karen Hagberg, who was one of the leaders of the, the task force at that time. And then later she came back to me and asked me to join the task force because she thought that this would be really an interesting you know, addition uh, to, to how we think about airway management. Right. Yeah. And Dr. Hagberg, a lot of our readers on Anesthesiology News probably know her from the biannual uh, airway management review that we publish twice a year. That's fantastic that you were able to connect with her and, and get involved. Sure. I'll tell you that that particular review is something I look forward to every year and I use it as a source of information because Karen's always up to date you know, on what's out there and what people are thinking. I'll tell you one funny story about the task force and Karen. You know, she 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 brought me there because she was so interested in the way that I look at airways and how I make decisions on how I'm going to take care of a patient before I ever touch the patient. So in the, the very first meeting of the current task force was in August 2019, and we were in the meeting room in the ASA headquarters for several hours, and we were discussing all these issues, and we were discussing the concept of decision-making. And at some point, Dr. Hagberg got very frustrated with the fact that I was being so silent on this issue. And she really all but blurted out, Will, say something. That's why you're here. And <laughs> I decided at that time to, to hold my tongue and, and bring up the issues when I thought it was right, which I did. I brought up the airway approach algorithm, which I think is at the right time. And that's now part of the algorithm, as uh, as everyone will see when they when they look at the papers. Absolutely. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, I guess, especially kind of coming into it and, and working on it for the first time, you were kind of, you know, sitting back and, and seeing what everything was about. But, you know, you know, your contributions are obviously very important. So I'm glad that she, uh, you know, push, pushed you a little bit. She poked me in the ribs. Listen to the new MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic. 
featuring brief interview-style discussions with clinical experts about safe and effective use of therapies in patient monitoring and respiratory interventions. The first series includes discussions on anesthesia and brain monitoring from raw EEG to processed EEG, the use of TIVA to post-operative outcomes, and many other topics. Check out the MedEd Learning Experience podcast from Medtronic on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. New episodes every Wednesday. So we'll jump right into some questions about it, um, just to kind of get more perspective on on what went into the process. The guidelines were updated in 2013 the last time. About eight years later, uh, you're publishing another update on it. So I was just wondering, why did the committee decide that this was the right time to write an update on these guidelines? So part of the mission of the task force is to update the guidelines as new data emerges. One thing that makes the ASA airway guidelines kind of unique because there are guidelines from from many countries and many societies around the world is that the recommendations are strictly evidence-based. And so as new data emerges, that data is analyzed by methodologists at the ASA. Rick Connus has been doing this as the methodologist since 1988. I mean, he really is the kind of the glue that holds the guidelines together. And so the the task force made a commitment to just about every 10 years update the guidelines. So we're actually a year early this time. Okay. I see. So it is a commitment that has been made from before. I mean, 10 years is, is quite a bit of time when you consider how fast things move in the specialty. So it does make sense. So yeah. So the next question I have for you is, you know, in, in the articles we published in the January issue of anesthesiology news about this update, you're quoted as saying um, that the committee decided to broaden, quote, the scope of what a clinician should deem a difficult airway patient. So I'm curious, you know, why, why did you and the committee make that decision to broaden the scope of that? So if we look at the original guidelines, they really focused on the patient who was a difficult intubation. And, you know, since that time, we've had the introduction of, you know, many new supraglottic airways and different ways to take care of an airway, including things like high flow nasal oxygen. And we felt the, the definition of just a difficult intubation was too narrow. So we wanted to broaden that definition so that as you saw a patient who maybe was going to be an easy intubation, but there might be issues with things such as mass ventilation or supraglottic airway ventilation, the clinician would, would keep the guidelines and the recommendations you know, in the forefront. Okay. Uh, you have kind of two sets of recommendations that you break down within the update about having the anticipated difficult airways and the unanticipated difficult airways. And part of the recommendations on the unanticipated difficult airways, the first action listed is simply call for help. So I was wondering, what was the thinking that went into making that the top item uh, under that list of recommendations? That's a really interesting question. And I think you know, this is something that we emphasize throughout medicine, that it, it often takes more hands and often takes another perspective, someone seeing what's going on to realize that there is a problem. Um, calling for help, you know, there, and there are parts of the, the algorithms which have been written that strongly recommend calling for help, whereas maybe it's an option someone can exercise. Calling for help is part of recognizing that you have a problem. And so we want people to do that early 
to bring in extra resources because once, especially with the airway, once things get bad, they can be they can turn disastrous very rapidly. So we we really emphasize that call for help. You know, I'd like to talk about is the decision tree tool, which grew out of this airway approach algorithm. You know, part of the decision tree is to is to look around and say what help is available to me, and I may make a different decision depending upon is there capable help available to me should I get in in trouble. So you're absolutely right. Actually, thinking about help, calling for help, seeing if help is available may happen before you ever touch the patient. Whenever you have an update like this, obviously there's a lot of interesting things to pick out. Could you give us some of the other highlights about the update? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things I'm really excited about. And and one is the decision tree. Uh, that is taking you know the information that's available to you and, and taking your personal experience with you know airway management and looking at what help is available to you and what resources are available to you to decide how you're going to manage this this patient. And that is now not only part of the ASA difficult airway algorithm, but it's also part of a a second graphic that's included in the update, and that's the infographic. And the infographic is both an adult infographic and a pediatric infographic, but it has the decision tree tool. So we decide the most important decision, many of us believe is if you're going to manage a patient after the induction of anesthesia, or you're gonna manage the patient awake. And then a part three of the infographic, which may be looked at as a cognitive aid, and this really differs from the ASA difficult airway algorithm in that it allows much more flexibility and understands that this is a dynamic situation where things are changing rapidly and decisions are made rapidly. A lot of us felt like the original ASA algorithm was very rigid, also dealt primarily with failed intubation. The, the infographic is much more flexible and also treats induction of anesthesia as not just the induction of general anesthesia and airway management, but also the induction of regional anesthesia and the induction of, of MAC or sedation anesthesia. So it's it's just much more flexible and applicable to, to all the anesthesia that we practice, all the techniques that we practice. Are there other highlights to to the updates that you um that you're really excited about? Well you know, I want to emphasize something I alluded to a second ago, and that is that what the what the update emphasizes is that every clinician is different, and we all have different experiences, both remote experiences and recent experiences. We all are put into different contexts where we have resources, or maybe it's the middle of the night and you have no resources. We know, for example, from the ASA closed claims uh, database or closed claim project that a lot of the airway mishaps happen off the operating room floor in, in the, the Nora suite. And so it takes into account that you may not have all these you know, resources available that you have in the operating room and, and lets you make decisions based upon that. And what that means is that two clinicians looking at the same patient may come up with two different plans for taking care of that patient. And both plans are correct. They are particular to the context of where care will be delivered and to the, the people who are delivering that care. Let me, let me mention, we're also setting up a webinar that my department at Yale 
is um, is sponsoring. And the webinar is is called Reflections on the ASA Airway Guidelines, or we shorten that to Rogue R O A G. And the name of the webinar is Going Rogue. And that's also the email if anyone's interested in these webinars. It's going to be a repeating series of webinars where, and of course, free of charge, where task force members will be giving small lectures on various aspects of the new guidelines. And then uh, there'll be plenty of time for, for Q&A. It is not an, an ASA webinar, it is not a task force webinar. This is an independent webinar where we will have task force members discussing it. If, okay. if anyone's interested in these webinars, it's uh, please email us at, at goingrogue, R-O-A-G, at yale.edu. Excellent. Yeah, and we can include a note about that in the uh, episode description as well so that people can check that out. Well, I think, uh, you know, just in, in brief, we, we covered, um, you know, some of the ideas about what went into the revised guidelines. Obviously, there's a lot more out there that you'll be talking about at these webinars and that, you know, I think reading the documents is very important, too. So we'll make sure that people have links to get to that as well. Um, you know, I do have another topic I wanted to talk to you about since we have you here. Um, you know, I think a lot of people know you as uh, you know, Dr. Rosenblatt, the airway on demand guy. Um, so you have this incredible library of videos that you graciously share with us at anesthesiology news. And you also uh, publish on, on the airway on demand.com uh, website. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you got into that. Um, you know, how you built up this airway management video catalog and, you know, built the brand airway on demand. How did you get involved in making this series? So I've always been into video and I've always, you know, for the last 30 years been into uh, airway management. And so, of course, airway management is very visual. And so combining these interests together, I was always filming in the operating room, primarily through, you know, airway equipment. And I was storing these on very large hard drives. It takes up a, a tremendous amount of space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, towards the you know, late 90s into the 2000s, YouTube came around. And the beautiful thing about YouTube is that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of videographers out there who have catalogs worth of material that they just want to share. So right. the, probably the first impetus was just wanting to share all this material I had collected. And so, you know, YouTube was a, was a, a perfect uh, media for that. And then other resources like Anesthesiology News, uh, became available as a as as a way to share these videos, and so it was kind of a natural progression. Yeah, I mean, it's great that you. I think that's kind of the secret is that you were already doing it. It was something you were just interested in because, um, and then you suddenly had uh, this huge catalog that you like got the opportunity to share, <laughs> and so YouTube shows up, and we obviously we come and and are able to grab some of those videos and reshare those. Um, you know, expand the audience. Uh, you know, I will say, and if anyone's interested and you haven't seen these videos, they're very short. Usually they're just, um, you know, 30 seconds, maybe a minute and a half at most. Uh, and it's usually, it's just, you know, one interesting thing that you might encounter uh, during intubation. Um, and you do a great job during the video of explaining what you're looking at. And uh, it's a series we publish every two weeks on anesthesiologynews.com. And 
Um, and you know, you can go to airwayondemand.com as well to see more. Um, but yeah, so it's, I mean, it's a really interesting, uh, series. It's great cause it's short and it's bite-sized, I guess you could say to kind of, kind of check out what, uh, what's going on there. Um, you know, one question I have for you and, and we've been publishing these for a few years now on our site. And obviously I know you've been doing it for, um, you know, a few decades now, you know, what are some of the difficulties in producing such high quality videos of intubations? Well, you know, the equipment, that is the equipment in the OR keeps getting better and better. And as it gets better and better, there's new, you know, signal qualities coming out of that equipment. So one of the greatest difficulties is just coming, you know, is keeping up with the technology and buying the right, you know, translator for the, for the video signal, having good recording equipment available. You know, I've gone from analog to, you know, hard uh, disc recorder to, um, you know, non-spinning disc recorder. You also, you also, memory is a big issue because we do, you know, it's a tremendous amount of memory um, that's needed to, to store these videos. So that's probably one of the biggest difficulties. You know, I'm, I'm very careful about um, patient privacy. I'm very careful about protected health information. And so very few of the videos you'll actually see a, an image of the patient externally. And when there is an image, I go through my own hospital approved uh, consent process. The, the consents for surgery actually have photography in them, but I do so much photography and um, it's, it can get quite personal when, when someone is you know, you know, sick in the operating room or, or unconscious in the operating room that I always do a specialized consent. So I please okay. be very careful about the consent process. This may not surprise you, but one thing we do hear um, fairly often from people is that they're interested in starting their own video series or audio series or something kind of related to some some area of anesthesiology that they specialize in or that they find really interesting. And so I was wondering if you had any advice for your fellow anesthesiologist out there who may be interested in starting to get going on a project like this, like a video series or something else similar. Well... You know, it's anesthesia and airway management in particular is very visual. And if you have the recording equipment, it's it's pretty easy to uh, record these videos. And you see a lot of interesting things. You mentioned that the videos were very short. And it doesn't have to be something uh, dramatic. It can just be something you see in your, your everyday practice. And you know that other anesthesiologists are seeing the same thing. Um, you just wanted to give them an example of, of interesting findings. I have, a, I have a, um, another physician who I've become friends with, um, uh, Dr. Roberto Larios, who is an anesthesiologist and, and critical care specialist. And he comes upon some really interesting findings, and he'll shoot off a video to me. And um, it's just I'm learning from just a, a practitioner who's you know, seeing interesting cases. So that's just really the way to get started. Uh, you know, it's just record everything and then, you know, filter out the stuff that's uh, totally routine and, 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 you'll, and you'll find interesting little tidbits within all the video you're recording. I basically record every intubation, every airway management. Okay. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, I was going to say that's definitely, I think the strength of, of your series is that it is just, it's so many different examples. It doesn't always have to be something dramatic. Um, you know, and it, and it is interesting people really, and on our website, we see a lot of people are interested. They come just to kind of see, you know, obviously they're short, so it's easy to, to check out real quick. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that's excellent advice. Just start recording and, and leave it on and, and see what happens. <laughs> you never know. Um, well, yeah, thank you for that. And obviously we'll include, uh, we'll include some more detail and links to some of the videos you've produced. Uh, and so people can check that out. So a final round of questions before I let you go, just cause it's always nice to get some, some insight and recommendations from, from you, uh, you know, any, all of our guests really that come on the show. So, um, you know, it's, I'm kind of thinking of this as a secret to your success uh, series of questions. Um, the first one is, what is the most interesting professional idea that you've read about or heard about lately? So there's a kind of a phrase that's been bouncing around in the, um, uh, in the literature uh, in Europe when it comes to, you know, difficult airway. And that is um, no trace wrong place. And it's something that they want anesthesiologists and others to keep in mind is that if you if you are managing an airway and you don't have a capnography trace, something is wrong and you have to do something about it. And that's a that's an issue I've been thinking about a lot because actually in the ASA guidelines and particularly in the infographic, we emphasize that looking at capnography and having a trace is probably the the most well, I won't say probably is the most important aspect of evaluating if you're if you're um, successful in managing an airway. So no trace, wrong place has been bouncing around in my head a lot. Okay. No, that's really interesting. Um, and so that, and that's just something that's generally kind of floating around. It's not like, a, is there a specific article or anything that, that we could send people to? There are some editorials in, in anesthesia. Um, a, that's A-N-A-E uh, anesthesia. Uh, in uh, from from Great Britain uh, that you'll find, and it, basically, I think if you look up "no trace, wrong place," you're going to bump right into those articles. Let me just mention a name. Um, uh, Tim Cook is uh, is one of the authors uh, of those articles. You also see a name that's familiar to many of uh, your readers, which is um, uh, Nicholas Crimes, who are uh, writing on these things. That's great then. Okay. Um, so another question for you, and I think you've kind of given us an answer to this one already with everything we've been talking about, but um, in the event that there's something else out there, what is one thing that you rely on to keep up with the ever-changing nature of anesthesia practice? Well, anesthesiology news. Well, <laughs> thank you. You don't have to say that, but thank you. <laughs> um, you know, because of the pandemic, a lot of education has gone online and that's resulted in a lot of um, no cost or low cost webinars. And you can hear from experts all over the world on various topics, medicine and anesthesia. And that's been tremendous uh, for me, like, like the going rogue uh, webinar. Um, mm -hmm. It's just so easy to get education now. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that is, I mean, like you said, that's a direct result from the pandemic is everyone had to go online and yeah, absolutely. You're right about that. That's, that is a really, um, I guess that's, you could say it's a benefit um, from a bad from a bad thing. So, you know, let me if if we have time, I'll make one more comment about that and how that impacted the ASA um, difficult airway guidelines, and I think especially the infographic. In a, in a typical cycle, what would happen is 
the group would get together in August of one year, talk a lot. There'd be some discussion over the year, but then they would get together the following August. And this is in person in, in Chamburg, Illinois at ASA headquarters. And they would talk and they would batter around some things. And maybe there might be some phone calls in between. But with video conferencing, we were meeting you know, almost weekly, sometimes twice a week for months on end. And I really think that led to a better product in the guidelines. So this is a way that problems with the pandemic actually are, I think, reflected in an improved uh, document. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it encouraged you because of going online to to have more interaction instead of less. Much more and and better interaction because we could see each other. Right. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I think people are more comfortable on video on video chat now, which is has been a really interesting change. Um, so, kind of going along those lines, you know, talking about um, talking about the pandemic, you know, and um, you hear it all the time. We live in unprecedented times. Um, I don't think that's more true for any individual group than anesthesiologists. Um, you know, it's been a, obviously a difficult two years whether it's, um, you know, because you can't do the work that you had been doing with elective surgeries, or it's because you've kind of been, uh, you know, enlisted into working with COVID patients or something in between those two extremes. Um, you know, it, it's been, uh, it's been just a, a really wild couple of years. Um, and so I was just wanted to ask you as a final, a final recommendation or just a thought, is, is there something that you could share that you kind of go to that helps you get through the, your day-to-day -day on the job um, over these past couple of years? Well, I think it's been some great colleagues and, you know, just working closely and really trying to, I know this is also a cliche, just trying to help each other out because everyone's under tremendous pressure and we can only get through this by, by being good friends, you know, as well as um, uh, being professional. And so that's really what got me through the last couple of years. That, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and coming back on Ask the Experts uh, a second time. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, this is, as many of the other task force members, really near and dear to, uh, to us. And we want people to understand what we did. And uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a great advance uh, for the ASA and you know, members around the world. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosenblatt, for being our guest here on Ask the Experts for a second time. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Now, if you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Rosenblatt and you're interested in learning more about the ASA's updated guidelines for difficult airways, you can visit our website, anesthesiologynews.com, to read more about them. I'll include a link to the articles in the episode description as well. And you can check out the Airway On Demand video series on our multimedia page. Now, if you enjoyed the show today, don't forget to give us a rating and a review wherever you're listening. And if you haven't already, definitely check out the other shows on this channel, The Etherist and On The Case. Thanks for listening. Anesthesiology News Persons Ask the Experts was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, 
Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Kristen Jenicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwang Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. Ask the Experts is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Group.